we must admit that we do not have the situation under control. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. Welcome to the world we want. Youth voices on climate and health. My name is Jonathan Foster. And in this second series, we continue meeting some of the world's most engaging and thought-provoking youth activists. We get their views not only on the reality of our current environmental and health crisis, but also about the possibilities, alternatives and ideas for transformation and change. We find out what youth activists are thinking and doing, and we find out what you can do to help build the world we want. We must stop playing with words and numbers because we no longer have time. Hello. In this episode, we've got the fantastic Benita Kembe, a brilliant teaching fellow at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health in the U.S., Amongst other things, Benita works to improve social determinants of global health with a special focus on the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And Benita employs qualitative research to address the socio-economic challenges facing underprivileged communities. Benita also has a special interest in cobalt mining because, as you probably know, the Democratic Republic of Congo has the world's largest known deposit of cobalt. So, if you've got a smartphone, or you're thinking, hmm, an electric car, well, you should have a special interest in cobalt mining too. Benita and I had a wide-ranging and frankly fascinating conversation that's coming up in just a moment. But first, let me begin by talking a little bit about how I'm feeling. <laughs> yes, I know this isn't about me, but I think it might reflect how many of us are feeling at the moment. So right now, whether it's because of my disappointment over COP27 and my fear that the 1.5 degree target could now be an impossible goal, or maybe it's just the oncoming winter up here in the north, but I'm suffering from a kind of anxiety. I feel like a spectator like a helpless onlooker. I feel like a witness to an ongoing disaster that I cannot do anything about. I'm weighed down with this feeling of disempowered agency, like I'm fossilized into a system that needs me, but ignores me. Now, as hard as there is a push to improve the lives and opportunities for people to flourish in this world, there is also another opposite force pushing the other way, closing doors, taking away ladders that lead to a livable future. Now, you might notice that I'm using the personal pronoun I a great deal here, and maybe that's the key to how I am feeling. What I want, <laughs> what I need, is to move from a world of I to a world of us. 
the environmental and health crisis, the biodiversity crisis, the, let's call it the permanent multi-crisis. These are all rooted in social causes. Now, way back in episode two, Maximo Masuko put it very succinctly when he said, the great crisis is not the climate crisis. It's the emotional crisis. It's the ethical crisis. It is the existential crisis. Now, in a way, this is a cause for hope, right? Because as the root of our problems are social, then the underlying values and principles and ideas and concepts that make up our social world, they can be altered, they can be changed, they can evolve. But I'm feeling anxious still because in our world of increasing inequality and imbalanced power relations, I'm wondering... How can we fix the world with the same tools that broke it? And I'm wondering, how do we get from here to an environmentally safe and socially just world? Well, luckily for me, sorry, for us, <laughs> there are people like Benita Kayembe to help us see a path. Now, later, I'll mention the PMAC conference and what you can do to get involved. But for the time being, Here's my conversation with Benita Kayembe. So Benita, you moved to the US uh, to study at Harvard, but you grew up in the Congo, right? Um, so could you tell me a little bit about this, this transition? I grew up in Katanga uh, between Likasi and Lubumbashi, but I moved uh, to Kinshasa some years after that. So I continued to grow up in Kinshasa and then I moved here. <laughs> and at Harvard, you're studying global health and population. What what drew you to that, that subject? What attracted you? One of the reasons why I picked global health and population is, you know, during undergrads, I was trying to, I minored in global health. And I remember the first time I was taking this course, Introduction to Global Health, I was like, oh my God, this is everything that I've been experiencing. You know, it's like taking that first Introduction to Global Health course made sense for me. And then I was like, if I ever decided to go to graduate school, this is what I'm going to study because it will allow me to, you know, first be happy in the things that I, I do, but I will also learn to how uh, I could better serve my communities, especially um, the country I come from. Would it be fair to describe your journey as traveling a path from the periphery to the center of power in, in global health? I mean, we often describe the world in terms of global north and global south, and it's the north that holds all the cards, right? Yes, yes, I think I definitely see that. And that power is just not in global health. It's in all the systems that we as a uh, humanity are going through right now. And, you know, it started with colonization, perhaps before colonization, when, you know, this slavery trade was happening. So I think that we have been into these systems that, you know, uh, I'm not going to say that the global South is, is powerless, you know, they have been powerful, but I think that like system put in place to kind of take advantage of them and, and, and make countries like the Congo weaker than you know they are. Because when you, you look at 
the richness of the Congo, just, just looking at it, you know, look at, you look at the culture, you look at the natural resources, you, like, you see that this is a powerful country, but the systems that we live in have just been extracting for them. And I, I think that's, um, that's also in global health. So in global health, we have these institutions, these countries in the global uh, north thinking that most often thinking that we can just go into countries like the Congo and tell them you know, what to do, uh, show them things that they should focus on, diseases that they should fight. But at the end of the day, I'm always like, you know, Congolese people know better. <laughs> they can do this by themselves, you know. Perhaps they they lack the resources to do it. So the, the best way to move forward is like, okay, these are the resources you need. Try to fix it yourself. You know, I think, you know, this is this is one thing I've been noticing since I came into global health because I also came with this perspective of I'm gonna, you know, go into this and change the world and go back to my community and fix everything. <laughs> but it's been like, oh, I can actually not fix anything. I can perhaps just, you know bring my, my communities together, learn together so that we can try to fix the issues that we are noticing together. I mean, that's really interesting. I've spoken to a lot of people, um, different people about how to deal with the multiple crises we're facing from environmental to biodiversity loss to global health crisis and so forth. And one of the things I've noticed is this implicit assumption that solutions should be implemented in a top-down fashion, right? But this lack of democratization, this lack of a voice, is a major part of the problem in the first place. Have you got a feeling about this kind of power imbalance? Yes. This top-down solution to everything in global health for in relationships between the north and the south i think it's has not been working you know i think that's why inequality is increasing that's why we have you know we are not finding any solutions to you know climate change issues um and and for me for for me, in the in the things that I'm doing, for example, I'm currently doing a, a research on the effects of of health, of, of cobalt on health, right? And approach that I'm taking with that, it's like a qualitative approach, going down into the the, the communities that are affected, you know, asking them questions about what they are experiencing and how they would want those questions to be solved. So that when we're trying to, 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 to address this issue, it's going to be a bottom-up approach, a community informed. It's like you go there, you ask them what they want, you know, they tell you how they want those issues to be fixed. So that even when those, those solutions come, they'll be like, you know, I knew that I, I asked for that. So I can cooperate with these people bringing it to my into my community. So I think as, as uh we are working on all the issues, you know, there's so many issues that everybody is working on. I think we should always uh, include the community because it's just not gonna work if we don't. 
I mean, exactly. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, let me put it this way. So often the solutions presented in these top-down scenarios, solutions to multi-crisis, they are so often rooted in technology or in markets. Uh, but really, this is a social problem. This is about the way we behave, the interaction we have with each other, the failure, for example, to allow people in the Congo, like you mentioned, to determine their own outcomes and so forth. So I just wanted you to comment a little bit on, on this difference between technological solutions and actual social problems, which is really the basis of so many of our crises at the moment. Yes, uh, I think in terms of technological solutions. I think technology has well, been it has been used to you know bring solutions to some issues, you know. But at the same time, it's it is the cause of many of the issues that we, we are seeing. You know, you will talk about industrialization. That was technology. And one of the reasons why we're experiencing climate change right now, it's you know because of industrialization. And so going into the future, trying to use technology as something that will provide us with the, the, the solutions we are looking for, I think that is not the best one. You know, one example is with, with cobalt electric and electric cars and all those things with iron batteries, right? So here we are like, oh, technology is good. Let let produce cars that don't use, uh, don't don't I don't know emit carbon into the atmosphere and all those things. It's, it doesn't cost too much. But when you go in the Congo where I'm from, people are dying from it. So you you like oh okay. At the end of the day, there's always a cost to technology. You know it might not be in terms of climate change, but it might be in terms of cost to human life in a country, in a city where you don't even know how those people live. And then it's just like hiding. So technology is good, of course, but uh, only if everybody is fairly included in this fight and nobody is dying from it. And you know, we really have to know what are the consequences of, of anything that you are doing. Um, because solutions come from the community, from people. You know, we have communities that have learned, that know how to live with the environment. You know, those communities, we need to work with them. Like, they know better. They know better than any technology that anyone can ever produce, especially if the person who's producing it doesn't have any experiences living, you know. Often when speaking to people, what I find is we have these almost two identities um we have an institutional identity let's say that that's on display where we work uh, wherever that might be you know um and then we have this other identity which is our personal individual identity uh with a set of feelings and political positions that are often in contradiction to that first institutional identity and of course, on one level, this is an example of social competence. <laughs> but on another level, this multiplicity of identities means that the political desires that we might have in our personal identities, they're kind of removed from the institutions. Uh, and those institutions need that kind of commitment, in fact. So what do you think about this observation? Have Have you noticed this as well? 
I think I've noticed that, but I think that has been the wrong approach. I mean, that is just my opinion. <laughs> that is my opinion. You know, like they say, if you don't take care of politics, politics is going to take care of you. I don't really know that quote very well, but I think this is how it goes. And I actually noticed that working uh, in the Congo this past year and, and working in different spaces where I've been, where, you know, politics is leading every single thing. You know, it is, you need them to write and pass policies. They are deciding, they are leading. You know, you will talk about progressive groups or other. It's like, it's all based in politics because this is how our countries are organized. So I think removing politics from global health issues it's not gonna change anything. We can write whatever we want. We can talk about whatever we want. We can publicize, show news, et cetera, et cetera. But if we are not grounded in policies and politics, and if we don't know what we can do to you know, pass the policies that we want and implement them in, in, re in region where we're working, you know, bureaucracy is just going, you know, everything's just going to stay on papers and that's going to be it. So I think we should bring it back. <laughs> that's that just my opinion. Let me just jump in here for a moment because these themes about politics and power are going to be addressed in the upcoming Prince Mahadon Award Conference to be held on the 24th to the 29th of January 2023 in Bangkok, Thailand. The conference will address a variety of themes as well as these very ideas that Benita is speaking about, including climate injustice, ethics, distributions, fairness, power politics, and the political economy. And they will be addressed in many of the youth-led sessions. So here on The World We Want, Youth Voices on Climate and Health, I will be digging deeper into all of these themes over the next few episodes. So don't forget to subscribe on your podcast provider. Now, right now, we are still facing this triple planetary crisis, climate emergency, biodiversity loss and pollution, and we need to set a new health agenda. So find out more and find out what you can do to help participate in making the right changes at the upcoming PMAC 2023 conference. The conference is titled Setting a New Health Agenda at the Nexus of Climate Change, Environment and biodiversity. And you can find out more at www.pmac2023.com. Okay, back to the conversation. So let me let me ask you the one question I <laughs> I seem to always be asking. Um which is, so why do you think it is that those people in power are failing to make the changes that we all desperately need? What is getting in the way? Is it this top-down approach that we've been talking about? Is it this colonial kind of mindset that you've mentioned? Is it purely economics? What is causing our failure to act decisively on the kind of issues that are you know, the most important things we've faced? 
I think, you know, first, I think it's it's all about power. Um, countries and individuals and communities have been benefiting from other people, from other regions, and we've been living it like this for years, you know. And I think other people are used to that. I've been socialized to accept that as the reality, as if we cannot change it. And as human being, I feel like some people are just like, I'm just gonna continue to do it, you know. But thankfully we have have this, you know, young, like you say, the young people you've been working with, like the, this new generation where we are like, you know, this is not the only reality. We can do better. We can do better for ourselves. We can do better for our communities. We can just do, do better as humanity in, in general. Um, you know, so we are discovering that most of us, you know, most of us were socialized, you know, like telling you that, oh, I used to be like, I'm going to go and save the Congo. We we were socialized to, to accept these things as reality um, and take advantage of people with capitalism and all those things. But, you know, it is not working. And thankfully, some people are noticing it. And that's why we are fighting to, to do better. Um, and hopefully other people will join in this fight. I mean, that sounds fantastic, Benita. So another observation that I have is that we seem to silo and separate our various crises as if they were not all interconnected and as if they were not mutually reinforcing. So we hear, for example, about global health, and then we hear separately about mining, and then we hear about electric cars, as if these were all separate challenges and separate entities that were not related to each other at all. Could you speak to this a little? Uh, like you said, they are not separate, you know, <laughs> they're not separate. It's it's like like people say, you know, we need holistic approaches to to the to the challenges that we are facing. So we talk about politics, we talk about economy. Uh those are things that human experience, we experience them as communities. So you cannot talk about one thing, you can not talk about one thing, you know and not talk about the other thing. And then when you talk, we look at health, health is impacted by, you know, politics, economics, economics. It's impacted by the, the way communities are structured. It's impacted by whether a kid goes to school or doesn't go to school. It's impacted by whether the kid's parent went to school. It's impacted by the environment in which uh, those kids are growing up or, you know, so, when we talk about you know my work into the Congo and looking at cobalt, you know, so Congo is at the center of of everything, you know. I I love I love when I talk about the Congo person. I'm like, oh my god, this country is so good. Like it's so like the culture, like the music, you know, most some of the most fun people you would ever meet, at least for me, are in the Congo. You know, but also when you look at the other side, when we read about the Congo, we always uh, read about how this country is so rich in natural resources. But also, you know, noticing that most of the issues that the country is facing, both social, economic, and health issues, 
are because of the natural resources that the country has. So when I was reading into it, I, I just saw that that was the root cause of what one of the communities I'm from is facing. So I wanted to, to kind of study the root cause. And now with climate change, with technology that you ask for, with the demand for cobalt, I was like, oh, this country is again at the center of everybody's eyes, but yes, technology is being produced by it again from the resources from its land, but humans are dying in cobalt mining every single day. And that has huge impacts on the health of those people, the health of the community. You know, it's like economics, global politics. Yes, they have papers, they send things into politics. Yeah, you can extract cobalt from this country, but at the end of the day, the environment and humans are, are being affected. So um, that's one of the reasons I chose to go back there in Colorado and do the research. And that's also one of the reasons I chose the qualitative investigation because, you know, with this approach, I would get both the social perspective, the economic perspective, and not just numbers, you know? It's like, there's just like so much going on, but all those are impacting health and, and the future of many, many generations. I love your mentioning of qualitative research there, Benita, involving the very people who are being affected, right? Is this a way to go about addressing the power imbalance, more involvement? Yes, I, I, I would say that with, you know, talking about climate change and the future in the world, we talk about how so many solutions have been top down, you know, we talked about how global health in general is has this top down approach. And you know how we need we, we need community solutions to 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 issues that communities are facing. You know, one of my professors always say we need African solutions to African issues, European solution to European issues. You know, you know, sorry, I just I just want to suggest that I think we need African solutions to European problems. Perhaps, <laughs> you know, I, I think Africa, I mean Europeans have been taking a lot from Africa to solve some of the issues, you know? <laughs> I think you can, you can look it at at uh, in different perspectives, but we need to work together. So talking about the future of climate change, who is at the table? Is it just Europeans? Who is making decisions? Is it just, you know, people in academia from the global north. The Congo is in discussions about like its biodiversity and how that saves, literally is going to, to, to save the world, you know, because it's home to the second largest uh, tropical forest on the planet. So when we are looking at that, we shouldn't look at it, it's like, let's use it. It's like, how can we work with the Congolese people to make sure that they are also kind of benefiting from this. When we're talking about producing electric cars, are Congolese people and African people at the table so that we can do it holistically in a way that doesn't hurt them? When we are talking about all these issues that we are facing as humanity, there shouldn't be any top and down. We are all equal in these things. I think that's you know one of the 
when I think about global health, it's like, it's like we are all equal, we are interconnected. We should see every one of us as human being first and respect the knowledge of each one. You know, people from the North can come with their own understanding from the South as well. But at the end of the day, we are human and we are trying to save humanity. Like that's basically it. How can we learn from each other? You know, create table for Africans at the UN. Security Council, bring in permanent people from, from Africa and from Asia and from the South and from indigenous communities because we need to work together. When we talk about holistic, it's like, okay, we need holistic views. Different people have different views, but we need to work in sync here because going it's one-on-one, -on -one, it's just not gonna work. We've spoken a little bit about living in different mindsets and having different identities sometimes, and living in different places. And often these identities and mindsets and places, they don't share the same level of power, right? Um, do you find this challenging or difficult in some way? I don't I don't think it's difficult. I, I think I've I've gotten used, <laughs> uh, used to that. I don't know if I said at first, like when I look at me. I see first a human being, you know, and that human being can be a part of many communities. At the end of the day, humans just want to be humans. We want to be loved, we want to be respected, and we want to be given the opportunities that we know we deserve and not being taken advantage of. You know, it doesn't matter if I'm from the US or from the Congo. At the end of the day, we are humans and we want respect, love, and we want to do best for ourselves. I mean, it does sound as if complexity and community and mutuality and social support and those sorts of things are essential uh, building blocks to a, a world, a, sustain, a sustainable world in the future. It's it's all about community. <laughs> I think it's, it's all about community. That's why in the individualistic approaches to solving these things are not going to work. That's why... You know, one person creating one technology is not going to solve climate change issues. Um, I want my research in the Congo on the effect of cobalt on health to be used as a resources for a bottom-up approach. And I'm saying the bottom-up approach because, you know, I'm from the Congo. I went, I went in the mining site. I collected all the data. I'm doing what they want me to do. And based on that, Everything that is going to come from this paper, it's theirs. It's their voices, their stories, and how they're impacted and how they want to be served. And I'm hoping that we will take that as a first, as a foundation to trying to solve this issue because the demand for cobalt is not going to end now. It's just not going to end. It is here, but how do we make it fair for everybody? If we can treat them as human beings with dignity, let's do that. There's no reason for people in the global north to be happy with electric cars while kids are dying in the mining. There is no reason. If, I think that is an issue that we can all agree that we can solve, right? Brilliant. Well, thank you. On that note, I'd like to say thank you so much for sharing your inspiring ideas and your valuable work with me here on The World We Want. Thanks a lot, Benita. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> so yes, if we want to overcome the challenges we all face together as human beings, and if I, uh, sorry, we want to overcome our eco-anxiety, 
Then, as Benita says, we need to bring everybody to the table. We need to truly democratize decision-making processes so together we can finally create community solutions to the issues facing us all as a human community. You can hear more from Benita on her own podcast, Perspectives in Global Health. Until next time, thanks for listening. We must stop playing with words and numbers because we no longer have time. This podcast was brought to you by the Prince Mahadon Award Conference and Jonathan Foster of Foster Media, in collaboration with the Swedish Institute for Global Health Transformation, FHI360, the World Health Organization, the British Medical Journal, and USAID.